If you were at the Christmas party last year, you may remember me talking for a moment about Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England in the 1600s, who, for all intents and purposes, canceled Christmas. There were strict laws that were passed uh, limiting any kind of special Christmas service or Christmas party. Soldiers were sent out into the streets to seize anyone who might be preparing a special Christmas meal. You weren't even allowed to fry a turkey. Businesses were ordered to remain open on December 25th because it would be wrong to pretend as if Christmas were unique. For all intents and purposes, Christmas was canceled. And you might think, man, this must have been some persecution of the Christians. But this was actually a movement driven by English Puritans. Puritans who actually loved Jesus. And they were convinced that the best way to protect Christmas was to shut down any celebration of it whatsoever. In fact, one ordinance was passed insisted that December be a somber time. The ordinance read this way, December must be spent with the more solemn humiliation because it may call to remembrance our sins, the sins of our forefathers who have turned this feast, pretending the memory of Christ into an extreme forgetfulness of Him by giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights. Now, it's interesting that the Puritan impulse was almost the exact opposite impulse of of American Christians that should maybe give us, this isn't the point, but maybe a little bit of humility in how we treat some of these cultural things. But while we can appreciate the zeal of the Puritans, we can appreciate their desire to keep the main thing the main thing, to keep Christ in Christmas, to make sure Jesus is the reason for the season, they may have overreacted a bit in shutting down Christmas. But my hope this morning is not to, not to get into the weeds and debate how we should celebrate. Are we right? Are the Puritans right? I don't really care to debate that, but I do want us to celebrate. Not, not, not decide how we should celebrate, but indeed to help us rejoice this morning that the Son of God has come into the world. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us has come. And in that, we want to rejoice. We want to just meditate in the Word this morning and consider that God has sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so let's meditate on that goodness together from Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to try to uh, Lord willing, capture the whole context of, of uh, the 4, 1 through 7. But I want us to start out there in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's no, nothing fancy this morning in terms of an outline. The first point is simply God has sent His Son. And what we're doing is we're picking up in the middle of something that Paul is is, uh, writing about. We're picking up in the middle of his thought. And we see that when when something begins with but when, we realize we're kind of hopping in the the middle of something. And what Paul's doing is he's contrasting these two different eras. The time before Christ's coming, 
and the time after His coming. The best way to describe this old era, according to Paul, was it a time of enslavement or a time of tyranny? You sort of maybe even felt some of that darkness and gloom and that, O come, O come, Emmanuel, sort of a cry, it's sort of a, a looking forward, a desperation. Because prior to the coming of Christ, it was a time of enslavement. You can see it there in verse 3. He says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Or probably on the same page for you, if you look back up to chapter 3, verse 23, it says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So even though God had given His his law to His people, and His law was meant to govern them, the people actually could not keep the law, so it enslaved them. Even though the law is good and perfect and righteous, what, what the law ended up doing for sinful people, and we're all sinful people, is provoke sin because nothing provokes rebellion like laying a law over someone and saying, you can't do this. So the law came, but, the, but, but sin through the law enslaved people to their sin. The Bible says that even those who, who maybe they never had the Old Testament Scriptures, maybe they weren't part of the covenant community of Israel, they too were enslaved. They had a sense of, of God's nature and of God's glory through creation. They had a sense even of God's law because it had been written on their heart. God had given them a conscience and, and, and the knowledge that they had of God, they suppressed and rebelled against. They did not thank God or give glory to Him. So all are bound by this slavery to sin. So this, this but when, but, but when the fullness of time had come, it, it, it points us back to this time of, of enslavement, but it also propels us forward to this new era that Christ has indeed come into the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Paul had used an illustration in the first couple of verses uh, about a, a child who was set to receive an inheritance at a particular moment that, that the father has decided. Well, Paul, Paul's argument is before that date, the son is no different than the slave. The, they, they don't have the inheritance quite yet because the date has not Come. You can think of a, a, a trust fund that's been set up for a child, and when they turn 18 or 21 or whatever it is, they can have this money. But until then, they can't really lay hold of this money. And what Paul is saying in verse 4 is, the time has come. The fullness of time has arrived. The time determined by the Father has arrived at the exact right point in history. On the day that God had set forth from eternity past, He sent forth His Son. Now, it's kind of fun maybe to, to sit around and speculate about what, what that means. Why was, why was this the right time? You know, I've read books about how 
Well, the road system was right, and the Greek language was all over the place, and Roman rules sort of would allow for the spread of the gospel. And I'm sure some of those things are true, and they're fun to think about, but the reality is that, that, that we are so limited, we are so finite in our understanding that, that we cannot begin to even grasp all that God had in mind and all that God planned from before the foundation of the world. We have such a small perception and blurred vision, but we can simply affirm this, that God, in all of His wisdom, in all of His counsel, in all of His goodness, in all of His knowledge, in all of His sovereign timing, had the date specified. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And those well, that, that term, the, the terminology matters. Right? God the Father and God the Son at just the right moment, the eternal Son of the eternal Father was sent forth into the world that He had made. Notice then that Jesus was, was sent forth. He wasn't created. He was sent forth into the world that He made. He wasn't made. He is eternally existent. He's the only begotten Son from the Father for all eternity. And this matters. This Father-Son terminology matters because it points to the fact that the Father and the Son, they share the same nature. They're both God. If the Son was made, then He is different from the Father. He is by definition, created. But if He's the only begotten, the only begotten from eternity, He is a distinct person within the Godhead, within the Trinity, but He is God Himself. C.S. Lewis made it simple for us maybe to understand. When you, when you come across that language, only begotten Son, what, that, that can be confusing and there's lots we could say about it, but th- this is helpful, I think, from C.S. Lewis. He says, when you beget... You beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make something, when you create something, you make something of a different kind than yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver makes a dam, a man makes a wireless set, whatever that was when C.S. Lewis was writing. I don't know. But Christmas is, is the Son, the Son of God, begotten from eternity, sent forth by the Father. And the wonder of Christmas is how He then came. Right? You've got God Himself, God the Son. How did He come? Well, the next two phrases describe how Jesus was sent forth by the Father. And where we might have planned or we might expect to find some triumphant manifestation from the heavens, we get a humble birth. It says, first of all, Jesus was born of a woman. This speaks to the humanity of Christ. This is in reference to what we might call the incarnation of Jesus. That is, again, the eternal Son humbling Himself. Jeff preached on this last week to the point of entering creation as an infant. Born of Mary. 
I wonder if you've had to humble yourself at some point and do a job that you felt like was just beneath you. For a man of my stature, a woman of my standing, I cannot believe I'm having to do this. Well, certainly all of us have, have thought that, wrongfully so. But now consider the, the, the Son, the one by whom and for whom all things exist, the one who existed outside of time and space, not only chose to show up, but showed up in the most humble fashion, taking on the fullness of human nature without losing a, a, a single ounce of His divinity. Right? He's a fully man, fully God, without losing a single ounce of His divinity, becoming a human person. And that's what Paul's highlighting here when he says, born of a woman. We know you know, we would be remiss not to mention that this woman was uh, a, a young virgin named Mary. This was indeed a humble entrance, but it was a miraculous entrance brought about by the Holy Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and Jesus was conceived in the womb of a woman who had never known a man. Jesus was Born of woman, identifying himself with humanity by taking on the fullness of humanity. And the text says he was born under the law. Now if you read Galatians, you see this under, 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 under a guardian, under the law, under a curse. It, again, it's pointing back to this idea of, of, of tyranny, of, of slavery. And so those who were born under the law were enslaved by their own sinful rebellion against that law. Again, you can just glance in your Bible down or maybe on the other page to chapter 3, verse 10. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Those who thought the law could save them were under a curse. Why? Because their hearts rebelled against the law. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. That's, that's the rule. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because they're, they're sinful. But Jesus is different. Right? Just because Jesus doesn't fit under the rule doesn't mean the rule isn't there. He is actually the exception that proves the rule. That He is the only one. That all others are guilty before God. Even those who had the written law failed to keep it. One thing the law did really well was teach people that they couldn't keep it. And that they were in need then of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God. And Galatians helps us see this morning that that has arrived in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Because he too was not only born of woman, he not only took on the fullness of humanity, but he was born under the law. But he wasn't, he wasn't assigned the curse because of his own son. We'll see that in a moment. Jesus lived obedient to the whole law. When no one had even come close to measuring up, Jeff mentioned last week a, you know, a, a high jump that you can't even see the top. It's like, saying, it's like attempting to 
jump across the Atlantic Ocean. You know, you may be able to jump six feet. Somebody else can jump three feet. Who cares? Who cares if you made it three feet further? You're not making it across. Everyone outside of Christ rests under the law and the curse of law because they failed to live up to the demands of the law. So in order to be what we needed then as sinful men, in order to be what we needed to provide for our failure, our inability to live up, our, 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 our sin... Jesus had to be born of a woman. He had to be born under the law. He had to be made like us in order to rescue us. So what you have in, in Galatians 4.4 4 is these, these things coming together, these, these two ideas converging in Paul's thought here, who Jesus was, the eternal Son, the one who was not made, God Himself, you have, you have that, and you have how he came into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, and together these make Jesus the only one capable of providing what we needed. And what is that? So you have, you have uh, the, the who of Jesus, it, it, who he is, you have how, the how of Jesus, how he came, and it leads to what has he done? What is He for us? Well, it's our Redeemer and the one who has accomplished our adoption. Those are the next two points. Look there at the beginning of verse 5. Two, that lets us know uh, this is a purpose to redeem those who were under the law. What you get in verse 5 is two purpose statements. We're going to take them one at a time. The first one is to redeem those who were under the law. Now, again, I've, I've been arguing that it's not just Israel who was under the law because they had the written law. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All rest under the curse and the tyranny and the enslaving power of sin. Some had the written law, some had the law written on their hearts. But Jesus has come not just to rescue Israelites, but He has come to rescue people from all over the world. A people for His own possession from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And He came to rescue those who were enslaved. They were under the law, under the curse. And when you hear that word curse, don't think like, Harry Potter curse, right? Think something more like consequence. In the Old Covenant, you had blessings and curses. The curses were the consequences of not obeying God. They were the opposite of the blessings of obeying God. Ultimately, the curse of the law is death. The wages of sin is death. Not only physical death, but eternal death, which is bearing the consequences of sin, the wrath of God forever. That's the curse. The curse of sin. And Jesus came to redeem people from that. You may, you may know this, but that word redeem, it, it just means to purchase, to, to buy. In Paul's day, you could save up enough money to purchase the freedom. Say your brother or your sister was 
you know, they, they became so destitute that they sold themselves into slavery. You could, you could raise the money and redeem them. You could purchase them. You could buy their freedom. But in order to do so, you'd have to pay the redemption price. Maybe you've heard it called a, a, a ransom. So redemption, the, the idea that Jesus came to redeem is that he came to pay the price necessary to set people free from the enslavement, the tyranny, and the consequences of their sin. It's the payment of the price owed that secured our deliverance from the bondage and the condemnation that we, we rested under outside of Christ. And the way that Jesus paid the price, the redemption price, was the giving of his very life. He, he, he must have, he, he had to have taken on the curse himself. And that's the amazing thing about Christ being born on the law and actually keeping the law, that he wasn't subject to the curse of the law because of his own sins, but he did experience the curse. And he did it on our behalf. Look there at chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus was indeed hanged from a tree. right? Not in the way we might, that, that sort of been uh, talked about in our culture, of being strung up, but nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross on our behalf. You see, Jesus was sent forth, born of a woman, born under a law with a specific purpose and mission in mind. And we've been seeing that even develop as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke. But for Christian people, people who know the Gospel, we can't help but look beyond the cradle of Christ to the cross of Christ because He was sent forth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. We can't conceive of the incarnation without this larger goal in mind, which is redemption for God's people. Well, there's another purpose statement there in verse 5. So that, you could translate that too as well, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I know it's Christmas, and, and, and we sort of know what's coming down the pike and so, when we go to church on Christmas, but I hope that this idea of, of adoption has not become old news to you. Liz and I were spending some time with, with a young lady yesterday, and she's been saved not, not too long ago, and so it's just kind of fun to be around a new Christian you know, somebody who's learning and everything's fresh and new. And we were walking through our statement of faith, and, and I'd gotten to the place on eschatology, and I'm trying my best to explain to a relatively new Christian this statement. Southern Hills Bible Church fundamentally holds to a premillennial eschatological position. And she's going, what in the world? And I'm waxing eloquent on premillennial views of the return of Christ and postmillennial views on the return of Christ and all millennial views on the arrival of the kingdom. And she looks at Lizzie and I and she goes, I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see him. I was reminded 
and frankly a bit convicted that the goal of our theology is to know Christ and to love Christ. And sometimes our familiarity with doctrine can actually lull us to sleep a little bit. When we want to debate these things, sometimes a new Christian is just saying, I just want to see his face. And I hope we don't do that here. I hope we don't do it with adoption. I hope that we don't say, yeah, here we go again. I can be a child of God. I've heard it a thousand times. Oh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would warm our hearts this morning. That we would say, he, he did what? God sent forth His Son for what? Not only to redeem, but to adopt. That our attitude would be, oh, tell me again. That I might be staggered again by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel truly is the most unique and amazing news. In fact, you could say from a human perspective, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is the uniqueness of the gospel. I went to church and I said, I've never heard anything like that. And I don't think man came up with anything like that. Not only redemption, but adoption based on God taking the curse for me. Man, what a joy to rehearse the gospel. You know, one song I've been listening to recently tries to capture the incredible nature of this salvation. And this lady says, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. It may be impossible for us to fully wrap our minds around the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't diminish one iota that it's true. And it's true for you and it's true for me. And I hope we'll feel that this morning about our adoption in Christ, that He takes us into His family, makes us His very own child. You see, again, sort of, sort of humanly speaking, we could conceive of a gospel where, where we are declared not guilty, but God still stands far off, cold, and distant. But that is not who God is. He not only sent forth His Son to redeem, but He sends forth His Son to adopt us and to make us His very own sons. J.I. Packer says that adoption is the greatest privilege of the gospel. Adoption is the greatest privilege of the gospel. He says this, Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. We receive the adoption of sons. That word receive matters, right? When we receive this, we don't, we don't earn it, we don't achieve it. This is a gift of God's grace and it extends to every person who turns from their sin and trusts in the finished work of Jesus. That's the glory of our union with Christ, that all of our spiritual blessings, they come not because we've achieved it or earned it, but they come to us through the work of Jesus Christ the moment a person comes to Christ. Every spiritual blessing is theirs in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just remind you that your greatest need this morning is not to clean up yourself, 
not to fix your life. Praise God, He doesn't adopt the way that we might adopt a puppy from the humane shelter. What's the cleanest, nicest, friendliest looking dog in the place? I'll take that one. Instead, He takes us, He declares us righteous in Jesus Christ, and He makes us part of His family. And so if you see yourself this morning as one who has rebelled and sinned against God, you feel that weight, the tyranny of sin, the enslavement of sin. I've tried a thousand times to clean myself up and it's failed. If you see that in yourself this morning, know that Christ has come and He has come as a substitute to take the curse on Himself, to bear the punishment that your sin deserved and mine. And He will forgive you. He will forgive you if you recognize that and turn to Him and ask Him for forgiveness. Jesus has come not only on a mission of redemption and rescue, but to accomplish what it took to turn a rebel into a son. To do whatever it took to turn a rebel into a son. But after... Coming to Christ, when you're adopted into the family, there are now not only privileges of family, but there are responsibilities of family. And for that, we still can't rely on ourselves. We need something else. We need someone else. We need the Holy Spirit. And so that's where Paul goes next in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God not only sends forth the Son in verse 4, He sends the Spirit in verse 6. The Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we were discussing earlier, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He sent Him into our hearts. At the core of our being rests God. God Himself, the Spirit of God. What is amazing is that the sort of adoption that God accomplishes on behalf of His people by and through Christ is a sort of adoption that actually changes a person's very nature. You know, adoption as we know it, it's a glorious thing, and it testifies to the gospel of God. And if if someone were, is in a position to adopt, we, we would encourage them to adopt. I think it's a picture of the gospel and the kindness of God. But a physical adoption changes a person's identity and it changes a person's relational status, but it cannot change their nature. God's adoption changes a person's nature. We become a new creation in Christ and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we said earlier, I sort of hopped ahead of my notes a little bit, but it's worth saying again, like every spiritual blessing in Christ, this is true of every believer. There is no second act of faith by which the Spirit might fall upon you. And you're, you're saved, but you don't have the Spirit. But you are saved, and you do have the Spirit because you, you've done this, this, and this. That's not how it works. If you're a son, you have the Spirit. And this Spirit cries out, Paul says, Abba, Father. You may know this too, but the word Abba is is the Aramaic word for father. And as far as we can tell, 
throughout all of history, this, this word was never used to describe God until Jesus showed up. Until Jesus showed up. And this word describes the close, personal relationship between a father and a son. The point is that the Spirit teaches His people that they are so uh, tightly bound to Christ. They are so closely united with Christ that the same close, loving relationship that the Son shares with the Father, if you are in Christ, you share the same relationship with God the Father. If you are a Christian this morning, there is no higher privilege than sonship. There is no higher privilege than sonship. You see now why Paul wanted to highlight that God the Father sent God the Son into the world. Because if you are united with Christ by faith to the Son, you become treated as a son. And I know, ladies, that's harder for you to, like, what do you mean I'm a son? Well, you're treated like a son. You know, I heard Greg Gilbert say, guys have to wrestle with this too, right? We're the bride of Christ. All right? It's not to say, it's never, it's not that it's always wrong to say, I'm a daughter of God. That's, that's true, and you are. But here, Paul's highlighting this idea of sonship, that you are treated like a son because you are united with Jesus Christ by faith. Without this eternal relationship then between the, the Father and the Son, there is no adoption and there is no relationship. That's why God had to send forth His Son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law. Think about the way Jesus talks about this privilege of being a Son of God. He comforts His disciples with these words, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God doesn't stand cold and distant and far off from those who are redeemed. He knows what you need before you even ask. And Peter was there and he heard this. And like most things, Peter had to learn the hard way at times. But he was eventually able to pass down these words to us in 1 Peter 5-7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you because He has become your Father in Christ Jesus. The Spirit has been sent into our hearts and He cries out, Abba, Father. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to His horrific death, and He's there praying and it's it's dark and His disciples can't even stay awake. He's alone. What do you hear Jesus praying? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. All things are possible for for you. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus, who we saw in Luke 4, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that indwells His people today, descended and rested on Jesus, was led to pray, Abba, Father, The same Holy Spirit that worked in Jesus' humanity has been given to us. And now in our time of distress, we can have confidence that we are treated like sons and we can turn to Him and we can cry out, Abba, Father. You know, like, that's that's, that's a distinct call or cry of a Christian. Abba, Father. 
like a baby has a distinct cry, right? A mom can hear something in the nursery from the front pew. Nobody else has heard it, and she says, that's my baby. That's mine. Like babies have a distinct cry, and they, they, they need something. We, too, have a distinct cry, and it is Abba, Father. And that's the privilege that we've been given. You know, perhaps, and maybe something stronger than perhaps, but we fall short of crying Abba, Father. We often cry and sound more like somebody who's grumbling, or maybe we're gnashing our teeth but we have been given the privilege in Christ of crying to our Heavenly Father and the promise that He knows you and He cares for you and He knows what you need before you even ask. And God sent forth His Son to make that sort of relationship possible. It's the only way. He sent His Son to make that sort of relationship a reality and it's your reality if you are in Christ. You have been immersed in, you've been clothed with, you've been united to Jesus Christ and are therefore treated as sons of God. Lastly, this morning we are treated uh, like sons not only relationally, but in terms of the inheritance. Look there in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And a son is, is a rightful heir to the promise, promises of God. In context, Paul's been arguing that, that faith is the means by which a person becomes a child of Abraham, an inheritor of the promises that were given to Abraham. So in context, these promises were given to Abraham that he will have these, these blessings, land, seed, blessing. And all those who are in Christ become inheritors of these promises of God. In short, we might say this, we will inherit the kingdom of God. We will rule and reign with Christ over the earth. We will live with God. The dwelling place of God is with man. We will dwell with God for all eternity. In fact, flip, flip back to the end of the book. Revelation 21 connects these ideas for us. I don't usually flip a whole lot, but I think this will help us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's the inheritance. We dwell with God forever. We dwell with him forever. It's all possible because God has sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. In Galatians 4, you see this contrast, the two different eras, the time before the coming of Christ when the law enslaved and the curse of law was in full effect, and the time following Christ when adoption is made possible and redemption is made possible. Why? Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. There's this radical shift, a new era dawned in the coming of Christ. And what, what kept coming to my mind is that this sort of becomes a, a picture of our, of our conversion, of our coming to Christ. We too, even though we lived after the death and resurrection of Christ, we were enslaved by this tyrannical ruler called sin. We were condemned in our sin. What, the, what, what we did know, even if you were a, a, a child and you weren't doing a lot of these outwardly crazy, you know, what we would call the big sins, the things we did know about God and the things that we did know about His requirements, we suppressed them, we pushed against them, we failed to give Him thanks, we failed to give Him the glory due His name. In other words, we were enveloped in darkness, under sin, but now we've been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We've been freed from the tyranny of sin, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, brought into His family, given God as our Father, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and made an heir of all of God's promises. And it's only possible, only possible, because God sent forth His Son. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that your word would indeed warm our hearts, that we would rejoice, that we get to cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, again, we are staggered by your plan to send Jesus to be born of a virgin, born under the law, to live perfectly in our place, die as a substitute, victoriously raised, raised from the grave, making redemption and adoption possible. Lord, thank you. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.